What is up, fools, freaks of nature, degenerates, people with all sorts of problems? You are always welcome here. This is like your support group, except I get to monopolize the conversation and I never shut up and we all drink alcohol. Two things that usually don't happen at a support group. Other than that, though, this is like a support group and I'm happy to have you. Welcome to the QTR Podcast. Today's May 28th, 2020. What do you think about that shit? Before we get started with the podcast, I want to shout out some of my patrons. Patrons are people that make the podcast possible through the people that sign up and donate a monthly recurring sum this podcast does not happen without them so i want to take a second and shout those people out first and foremost are my exclusive gold and silver dealers over at jm bullion jm bullion by the way i just placed an order from jm bullion i think yesterday uh and it shipped they turned it around again same day so these guys have a great track record of turning around their orders same day at least for me maybe they're treating me special Tell them you want the QTR treatment if they don't do that shit for you, but I can't imagine they're treating me any different than any other customers. Uh, Lots of shit in stock when I was on the website yesterday, and uh, people always ask me, who do I go with for gold and silver? The answer is JM Bullion. uh, They reached out to me last month. They said, hey, you know, we'd like you to try our site. We want to support the podcast. I said, all right, very similar to what I said to today's guest, which is I will only talk about it. I'll only use it if I like it. And sure as shit, I liked it. And so now JM Bullion is a partner with the QTR Podcast. I'm happy to have you. They're happy to have you. We're just one big, happy, gold-toting, fed-hating, loving family. Check out my friends over at JM Bullion. QTR Podcast listeners have their own dedicated sales rep. Kathy with a K, K-A-T-H-Y, at jmbullion.com. And you can also follow JM Bullion on Twitter. There's a link to them in my podcast profile. Shout them out. Talk to somebody over there. Tell them QTR sent you. They will hook you up with $5 off your order and free shipping. This podcast is also brought to you by my dear friends over at the Sanglucci Steam Room. There is no better example of what the Sanglucci guys are best at than today's action in COMM. If you are a day trader, Wall Street Jesus and the Sanglucci Steam Room pointed out the huge action in com calls this morning. 30 times the... Uh, average daily call volume in com and the stock went ape shit today during the day this is a real life story where did i see it first i saw it first from wall street jesus and the sanglucci steam room and uh that was a great trade today that worked out very well and it just goes to show you what these guys are experts in that is tracking moves in the illiquid options market watching the big money the big paper come in and trying to figure out where that is going to uh help set off or catalyze moves in the equities markets. The Sanglucci Steam Room is one of these tools where it could pay for itself very quickly. It is worth checking out. They are honest people to do business with. They're the originals. They're the original OGs of looking at unusual options action and tape reading, following money in the options market. So check out my friends at Sanglucci and the Sanglucci Steam Room. The link is in my podcast description. They also offer the Sanglucci Master Course, which is financial education without the bullshit financial jargon and the 3LT playbook which are the three rules that Lucci used to become a seven-figure trader this podcast is also brought to you by my favorite day trading community the trader's path my homeboy Pete Hedger has started the trader's path because he got tired of the nonsense and the bullshit of other day trading services he thought maybe he was getting front run he thought maybe the guy running the service didn't give a shit about him and judging by some of the advertisements I've seen for some of these guys on YouTube that doesn't fucking surprise me They are some wormy-looking motherfuckers. So Pete said, I'm going to start my own shit called The Trader's Path, where he offers a daily watch list, a live stream, investor education. He trades in red markets. He trades in green markets. He trades in options. He trades in stocks. He doesn't waste your time with fraudulent nonsense or bullshit. He's an honest guy, and his service is a great community, especially with the market as volatile as it has been over the last couple of months. So Pete Hedges gets my endorsement as a human being and as a service provider. Don't fuck it up, Pete. But until he does, check out the Trader's Path. The link is in the podcast description. Tell Pete I sent you and you want a discount. Demand it. This podcast also brought to you by my friends at RumorHound. RumorHound is a tool. There is nothing else like it on the street. It looks at merger and acquisition rumors that happen on a daily basis. You see them in chat rooms. You see them on Twitter. You see them online. And RumorHound takes that information, 
puts it into its proprietary software, which is AI-based and uses a proprietary set of variables to try to determine how credible rumors are when they come out. And this could be very important information. Again, you're talking about another tool that might pay for itself if you can use it correctly. RumorHound will use its AI-based software to try and spit out to you a recommendation as to whether or not a rumor is something you should avoid or something maybe you want to look further into. And again, that can be a lucrative heads up. It is a beautiful platform. They offer a 14-day free trial for QTR podcast members exclusively. That link is also in the podcast description. And you can follow them on Twitter at RumorHound. Check out my friends there. Tell them QTR sent you and you want a deal. Tell them you want 10% off or you're walking, damn it. I don't even know if that's uh, what they offer. But today, according to me, it is what they offer. Go check out my friends over at RumorHound. This podcast is also brought to you by my friends at Corvus Gold, my friend Nathan Machado at Investors Underground, Ken R., Chris B., Nicholas Parks, Matthew Zimmer, shipping analyst Jay Mintzmeyer, Russ Valenti, my homeboy, Crichton Titus is in the house, and some of my newest patrons, Antrim Investment Research, thank you, my friend, Edward Campbell, Sin is in the house, so is Will J., Al V., what's going on, Nick Knafsi, fucked it up, sorry, but what are you going to do? Alan Weber, Robert Mizello, my homeboy just stepped up in a big way. Thanks for supporting me, Robert. Maury Ballstein, Will Smith, Simon Thorison, DT, and my homeboy Bobby Brooks, Daniel GGC, all in the house, and some patrons that have been with me for a minute, like 10 Strike Racing. How about my homeboy Will and Egg Nasty? Jonathan Abel, haven't forgotten about you, as well as Ed Roop and Robert Weisenfeld. Thank you guys for the continued support. All right. Here's the two rules for today's podcast. First and foremost, there's a two-drink minimum. Today, you may want to drink something fancy with your pinky out a little bit because we're going to be talking about priceless works of art. Isn't that wonderful? So take your $8 bottle of brandy that you drink and hold your pinky out while you slam down seven shots of it to forget about what a terrible day you had losing money in the market and working your terrible job where you hate your boss. That's the first rule two drink minimum. The second rule is this is not investment advice. I'm not an investment advisor. I'm sure as fuck not a museum curator. So keep that in mind when I start talking about priceless works of art. Um, Nobody and nothing on this podcast is ever to be construed as investment advice ever in the history of the podcast for as long as these recordings shall live. You may be listening to this 400 years in the future. And I may have been dead many, many, many years ago. Hopefully, still no one is using this as investment advice. But if it's 400 years in the future and you're stupid enough to fucking do that, by all means, log on to the iTunes store and rate me one star. As a matter of fact, just rate me one star anyways and never listen to this podcast. Let's get started. All right, I'm really excited to have my guest on today for a couple of reasons. And I want to kind of go about introducing Scott Lynn uh, in a couple of different ways. The first is I want to disclose right up front that uh, Scott's company Masterworks uh, has supported the podcast. And I also want to disclose up front that um, I just created an account at Masterworks relatively, uh, you know, just not that long ago. And the reason is Um, You know, it's like my thing with JM Bullion. I I like recommending those guys because they do great work. Um, It helps that they support the podcast and that kind of put them on the map for me. But I wouldn't be talking about them if I didn't like their service and I didn't use it. And Scott Lynn and Masterworks here are kind of very similarly situated. I looked at what they were doing when I found out about Masterworks and I I thought it was really interesting because the art world is something that I read about all the time. It's this like opaque kind of illiquid alternative investment market that I don't know shit about. I mean, nothing, zero zilch. I mean, I've gone to the Philadelphia Museum of Art, but that's about it. And I thought it'd be an interesting opportunity to have Scott on, um, not only to talk about his company, which I think is an interesting concept, but also to talk about the art market in general. So um, Scott is uh, the founder and CEO of Masterworks. It's a company that allows investors to basically buy shares that represent ownership in uh, great masterpieces. You know, artists like Warhol and Banksy and all of the famous masterpieces, all the famous works of art you've seen. 
they essentially help crowdfund and help people uh, invest in these works of art. Obviously, you don't have $10 million to go out and buy a fucking painting on its own. Uh, and this is a great way to kind of divvy that up. And I found the concept to be very interesting, and I find the art world to be very interesting on its own. And Scott has this very long story history of uh, being an entrepreneur on his own, and he's been a private art collector for 15 years. So I was like, all right, you know what? We're going to class the joint up a little bit today, and we're going to talk about some priceless works of art. Scott Lynn, how the hell are you today? Thanks, Chris. Yeah, I'm, I'm doing well. Excited to, uh, excited to talk about the art market. I am too. So let me just give you where I'm coming from on this, okay? Many of my podcast listeners, myself included, we strongly dislike what the Federal Reserve does. The Federal Reserve thinks that it can create value and money out of nowhere. So one of the things that intrigues me about the art world is the idea that when you buy a piece of art, you're also kind of buying an antique. You're buying a piece of history. Um, and I was thinking about it today while I was working out trying to figure out how art is actually valued. Um, and that was kind of the thing that I thought of. I was like, well, you know, I could kind of think of it as an antique. When you go out, if somebody had the original copy of the Declaration of fucking Independence, that would obviously be a much sought after item because there's only one of them. However, most of my whiskey drinking podcast listeners and myself included we look at the art world as uh, basically a bunch of crazy people, and the latest piece of art that we've kind of experienced was this guy who duct taped a banana to a wall and got $100,000 for it. Uh, what are we missing? <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. So I, so I think a lot of people feel that way, and, and maybe the, the, the best way to start is just to talk about the size of the art market to... Um, to contextualize it with with other asset classes, so the size of the asset class today is roughly 1.7 trillion dollars. If you compare that to private equity, private equity is roughly three and a half trillion. Uh, gold is five trillion. So it's this it's a very very large asset class. Last year, 68 billion dollars in art sold. Um, so you know, for a lot of people that aren't familiar with with the art market, I, I think they do tend to read these these stories in the news about you know bananas that are taped on wall that sell for a hundred thousand dollars and think it's crazy. But this is a this is a real industry with lots of lots of players in it that's that's turning over billions of dollars a year. Right, but you can understand how a bunch of beer drinking, sports watching people like myself look at a banana duct taped to a wall and see a $100,000 price tag and we just say these people have lost their fucking minds, right? Yeah, I mean, I, you know, with the, the uh, <laughs> I think talking about the uh, the banana is probably a rabbit hole that, that won't be productive. But, um, you know, there's, there's, there's lots of artists that, um, that are well-known. You know, the most, the most um, well-known artist, at least in terms of uh, annual turnover, is Picasso. Um, and it's interesting if you look at the top 100 artists, uh, mostly household name artists, Picasso, Warhol, Basquiat, etc. Those artists constitute roughly 62% of that $68 billion a year in turnover. So from, a, from an art market perspective, there's actually very few artists that, that constitute the, the, the majority of the market. So my question, though, I guess my first question I'm trying to get at, and I know you say you don't want to talk about the banana, which kind of makes me want to talk about it a little bit more, is where does the value come from in something like that? Yeah, you know, the, so the banana um, is by an artist named Maurizio Catalan, um, who, uh, you know, is a very, very well-known artist. He was making a statement that was that was somewhat... Um, um, uh, I guess it can to performance art, but um, it, it, you know that the, I, I think that's a challenging that's a challenging example, just because you know that that one is hard to value since obviously the banana is not going to be around forever, right? Um, <laughs> you know, so and it's a banana, uh, and it's a banana. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I you know that 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 one's that one's definitely difficult to get to get your head around. But I, th I think there's much more obvious examples which are are easier to understand. And one of the things that I always tell people when they when they question sort of art as an asset class is it's important to remember this is one of the oldest asset classes there are. Right. So Sotheby's up until going private recently was the oldest 
a company on the New York Stock Exchange at 275 years old. So art literally has been traded publicly at auction for centuries, um, which in itself is, is hard to wrap your head around. Yeah, and that's one of the things that I understand can give it value. So I was working out today, and during my entire workout, I was trying to figure out what it was that I wanted to ask you when I finally got a chance to talk to you. And I was exploring the question in my mind of where the value comes from. I mean, you know, the history, I think, certainly is one of its biggest advantages, right? That This idea that it has had a value and it's had a value as an asset class for such a long time. Um, you know, when I think about things like gold, which has thousands of years of value as an economic instrument because, you know, people have decided it's a store of value and because it can be used for production as well. I understand that. When I think about art, really, the only thing that I can think of is it's, you know, the 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 history and the antiquity behind it that um, that 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 really like uh, help assign it value. I mean, is it is it is it correct to look at it? Is it correct to look at a piece of art from say seventeen hundred and Scott kind of look at it almost as like an antique or am I looking at it the, the wrong way? Yeah, it's a, it's a complicated question. So I, I guess I would think about a, a couple of different things. Obviously there's very simple supply and demand dynamics in the art market, just like, just like any other market. Um, desirable objects have higher prices, just like, you know, a, a more desirable gemstone would have a higher price because it's larger or, or something like that. Um, so those those simple dynamics apply to art just like any other asset class. We we've taken um, we've actually taken a more specific project around what drives art prices uh, and studied that with our research team over the past couple of years. And and we think there's there's two primary things that drive art prices over time. Um, one you mentioned at the at the beginning of the podcast, which is supply. Um, and one of the really, really fascinating things about, about the asset class, which I think is unique to it, I don't think there's really any other examples like this, is that with an artist, an artist, you know, an artist makes so many paintings during their life, they pass away, and then those paintings ultimately are donated by collectors to museums or other institutions. So you always have a declining uh, supply of art available for, for great artists. And that's why when you, when you look at artists like Jackson Pollock, we did these drip paintings, really important paintings in American history. <clears throat> you know, there's only 22 drip paintings left in private collections, but the 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 paintings that are left are not that great. They're sort of BC paintings, but they still sell for 30 million dollars just because there's there's no other examples. So that's that's one obvious thing that drives our prices up over time. The second thing, which which is a little bit <clears throat> more of a hypothesis, but I think we we are getting more and more data to support this is that art prices are correlated to global ultra-wealth creation. So as the wealthy get wealthier, art prices tend, tend to rise over time. Right. Um, so if you believe that, that inequality, for lack of a better word, is growing uh, into the future, then you can see a world where art prices continue to, continue to increase. And that is why this idea of speaking to you today intrigued me, because the articles that I've been reading, I would say over the last two years or three years, basically say that as the inequality gap has widened and as the global central banking mechanism continues to do what it does, that this asset class is this place for the ultra wealthy, like you said, to kind of duck into and... I mean, some of the returns on some of these pieces of art, you almost have to think to yourself, like, what is going on here? Like, is this money laundering? You know, like, guy buys something for $49 million in 2005 and then turns around and sells it for $500 million, you know, 10 years later. And you think, like, oh, my God. First off, who has the money to do such a thing? And second off, like, you know, what does this super illiquid, difficult-to-gauge market look like? Um and what is that predicated on? Like, where does that bid come from? And 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 I guess another good question for you, Scott, would be where would the offer come from too? Like, what would be the best and the worst things that could happen for the art market? Yeah, there's there's a lot there's a lot of questions there. So obviously, you know, you, the art market today, just to maybe 
um, qualitatively describe, you know, what it looks like. You basically have on a single evening in a New York sale, you'll sell a billion dollars in art to two or three hundred people in a room. So we are we are living in a world where you know there's 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 a massive amount of wealth um, that's that's just been been going into the art market. Um, forgetting what your what your second question was. Well, I just wanted to know what the best thing. You know, what would be the best thing for art buyers that could happen that would drive prices down? And what would be the best thing that could happen for art sellers that could drive prices up, in your opinion? So, I mean, obviously people have made a ton of money in the art market. If you if you look at uh, the top 100 artists that I that I mentioned that constitute 60, 62% of the overall market, that segment of the art market has outperformed the S&P for the past 20 years, uh, just in total. So it's obviously going up in value pretty pretty quickly. Um, in terms of, of artists that that lose value, uh, it's interesting if you if you look at that top 100 list, there's only really been, and I, I may have this time period wrong, but I believe over the past 10 years, uh, three artists that have consistently lost value. One is Jeff Koons, uh, one is Murakami, um, and one is Damien Hirst. And there's there's specific reasons for those three artists as, as, as to why they, they they just haven't performed um, like like the rest. But but all all three of those artists um, are living artists. So do you know the, what the reasons are? You know, I, I would say high level. The the, the reasons are, are just um, over inflated prices and hype by kind of the the you know art world um, industry or intermediaries really pushing up those prices. And not having the the demand from collectors to support it, um, so really just overhyped. I think living artists, uh, to a certain extent, they're all they're all very important artists. They're they're significant, but um, you know a lot of their work sells for tens of millions of dollars, and therefore over over time, it it, it just uh, it, it didn't maintain its value. When you talked about Jackson Pollock a second ago, I kind of jotted down a question: how how much of an artist's how much of a artist's work is tied to the person's kind of impact on the ethos of cultural or, you know, at the time. Um, you said that when you were describing the Jackson Pollock paintings, you said, oh, they were very important paintings. And I wanted to ask, you know, why why were they important? Like, what was there something tied into the culture? When I think about musicians, for example, and I think about guys like, you know, Bob Dylan, okay, who is indicative of a certain time in American culture, in a certain place in American culture. And so if you got a first edition, you know, so-and-so of Bob Dylan, whatever, it's going to be worth a hell of a lot more than, uh, you know, of a first edition of uh, an album that I put out, right? They're, they're going to be starkly different. The tie there is into kind of the zeitgeist of the time. How much of that is true with art? Why did why did you use the word important when you talked about Jackson Pollock's paintings? So when we when we uh, I guess in the art world when we when we use the word important we're, we're generally referring to um, something called cultural significance and I, I can talk about how that's de defined but specifically with Pollock Pollock was um, part of a movement called abstract expressionism uh, in in you know the nineteen forties fifties and sixties in the U S where. That, that was the first time that artists started painting purely in a non-figurative way. So for hundreds of years, artists have been painting people, they've been painting things, and this this was the first time in history that they, they started painting purely abstractly. Um, so that was culturally significant, that had never been done before, uh, and that, that led to, to all sorts of movements, both in art and architecture, uh, after the, the, the 1940s or 1950s. So Pollock is, is regarded as a very culturally significant artist. Now, I would say one of the things that is interesting in today's art world is that there's 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 some correlation, but there's not necessarily clear correlation between cultural significance and price. Meaning, there's a lot of artists that are cultural significant who have just their markets just haven't really ever taken off. Um, so they aren't you know anybody they aren't that I would know tied to any, anybody any names that I would know. Well, you know we we um, we just recently did an offering for an artist named Sam Gilliam. Um, and Sam's a living painter. I think he's in his 90s now. Uh, very important African American artist uh, who who was sort of doing these um, almost tie dye like paintings in the uh, in the the late 60s, early 70s. 
And, you know, his paintings were selling, I think, 10 years ago for right around $10,000. Um, today, they're selling for a million dollars, which which obviously is a huge job. But compared to a lot of his peers, he's still, we believe, undervalued. Um, his work's collected by, by every major museum, uh, every major institution in, in the U.S. Uh, so we think, you know, we think he, he still has a lot of runway. But... You know, there's there's lots of examples uh, of, of artists like Sam that that exist. So who, who we think are interesting. So in a case like Sam Gilliam, how does somebody kind of go? And you can answer specifically if you know the answer for him, because I'd be interested in hearing it. How do you go from just being an artist producing art to being a person of significance in the art world? Like you're saying, a couple of years ago, these are ten thousand dollar paintings, which to me. By the way, still seems like a lot, <laughs> uh, but you know now you're saying they sell for a million dollars. Is it is it longevity? I mean, I'm looking at the painting that you're talking about. It's called Tracing, right? Yeah, that's this, a, that's the one. Yeah, this one. Yeah, and so I see it's uh, the initial offering is seven hundred and seventy thousand on it, and I see that he was born in 1933, so he's uh, he's obviously getting older. Uh, what gives him? You know, what what is it that catches on that automatically ascribes that, you know, uh, value the so quickly the way the way that that has? And you're saying he's underappreciated and and that, you know, you think his art may be undervalued. And so what you know, what has the art world missed and what's the significance that you think should be placed upon his works? Well, the, the journey for any artist, um, I guess, sort of revolves around one, what gallery represents the artist. So obviously, um, major galleries can really can really change an artist's career just through their represent their representation, their network, um, and their ability to, to place the work in, in, in collectors' homes. Um, two, who's collecting the artist does matter. Imp- important collections do increase the value. Um, and just the notoriety of, of an artist overall. And then thirdly, museums or institutions. So uh, as soon as a museum starts acquiring work, um, that, that can help an artist, artist as well. Sam's a, Sam's a tough, he's, he's, a, he's a tough, um, I guess, explanation just because he, he had all of those things, but for, for whatever reason, and I think a lot of people uh, in the art world would say possibly um, just because a lot of these, these African-American artists were overlooked, in, in history, his his work never really took off. I mean, there there really was no good explanation for his paintings selling for ten thousand dollars ten years ago, um, considering just his career and, and what he'd accomplished. When you know, seeing that this guy is born in nineteen thirty three, the 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 question starts to arise about, and one of the questions I was going to ask you anyways is, you know, how how significant the death of an artist becomes in a person's work. Um, You know, the way that I think about it, just from thinking of art as commodities that are tied in innumerable ways to the people that create them. Um, And, you know, maybe I have a rudimentary look at this because I really don't know anything about the art world at all so I'm just kind of trying to put this together in my idiot brain but to me I think you know when you look at something that is painted by a a certain person uh, that it's tied to them and it's there's a very kind of like intimate connection between the artist and the piece of artwork and so when an artist passes away can you talk about you know what that does to the value of art and 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 even i mean we all know art goes up when an artist dies but what does it mean what does that mean in the art world yeah i i think simply and obviously very logically when when an artist dies it, it just means that they're no longer creating work um so there there can be no more supply and then the supplies i mentioned before start shrinking as collectors donate their work to museums um, so, so really that, you know, that it, it's less about the artist dying, I think, and just, just more about the fact that there's not being any new work created after that point right. and supply slowly starts shrinking. When, so when you collect Scott, because 
in the bio you sent me, it said, you know, you've been an art collector for 15 years. We have family friends that are art collectors as well. You know, I've been in their homes and I, I, I really don't know what I'm looking at. I, I, I'm just, and, and it's, it's not that, it's not that I think that there's, that it's crazy. I think I just don't get it. I'm not on that wavelength. I think maybe if I understood it better, that I would get it better. When, when you go to collect art for your personal collection, Scott, how much of it are you thinking about, you know, uh, the compounded annual growth rate of what you're going to make from it versus uh, aesthetics, you know, actually just appreciating the art and saying, oh, I like Salvador Dali. So, uh, you know, here's what this painting means to me. So I want to own that. Yeah. I mean, I, so personally I collect, you know, I, I, the reason I mentioned Pollock earlier was that that's an artist I've collected and I, you know, I focus on this sort of mid-century abstract expressionism uh, period personally so you know these are really expensive paintings. So I mean I can't I can't say that um, that there's there's no emphasis whatsoever on on how much they're worth or how much they're appreciating. Um, that there obviously is, but I also do personally try to try to buy what I like. Um, and more recently, I've been buying a lot of a lot of younger living artists um, just as a hobby. But uh, you know I think in today's art world, you know where things are selling very frequently for more than a million dollars a painting, $10 million a painting, $50 million a painting. I think there's always some financial lens that a collector is looking through when they're, when they're spending that, that type of money. Right. I mean, most collectors, the, the ultra wealthy, the high end collectors that you talk to, and these are people in the Venn diagram of my life and their life. There is no intersection in the two of them, (laughs) except, you know, we probably, we both have garbage men that pick up our garbage on Tuesdays and Thursdays. But other than that, we don't really have much interaction. Uh, my garbage sits next to theirs in the back of the garbage truck. But when you talk to those people, you know, what do you get from them? Are they buying because they are investing or are they buying for aesthetics? I would say that collectors today, my sense is that collectors today are very focused on fair market value, meaning they don't want to overpay for something, but I don't think they're they're as focused on appreciation rate. And and the, the research team at Masterworks is actually the, the very first research team, believe it or not, that sounds incredible, that, that really is focused on just understanding how to think about appreciation um, by different segments or different artist markets within the art market overall. And we, we published some of that data on our website, as you've, as you've probably seen. And that's really the first time that anyone has published data on, for example, the fact that Sam Gilliam's market overall is appreciating at 35% a year. Um, that data is really not well understood by the art world today. Yeah, it, and it, and to people outside of the art world, it's just complete opacity. I mean, I just I'm looking at a canvas with paint on it, you know, at whatever a hundred dollar piece of canvas with couple hundred dollars worth of oil paints on it and I see a $770,000 price tag and you're wondering like well what has to happen here for this you know couple hundred dollars in supplies to turn into something that is valued at $770,000 I think about it like very similar to the way that I think about autographs right and and these other types of collectibles that are sold I mean is that a, is that a bad comparison on my end just kind of like a low class rudimentary comparison but I can't help but no, think of I, like if you have a Mickey Mantle baseball with his authenticated autograph on it Mickey Mantle has passed away and is a piece of American folklore and one of the greats that that's it, it's similar in that regard is it not yeah I, I, I think it's similar I mean you know the art world is very weird and, and this has always been frustrating for me in that it almost tries to not accommodate new collectors or not try to teach people about about the art or about you know how to think about value. And I think one of the things that we've done in Masterworks, which which is a little disruptive to the art world, is we, we've tried to communicate really about art in the same language um, to our investors who who are you know we're kind of training um, training on art from from day one. In language or data they understand, right? So we publish things like historical rate of return. We publish things like risk ratings. Um, you know, we write um, very short uh, paragraphs on why painting is important. Um, we write information on, on why an artist is important. 
and we just try to make it very digestible and, and sort of no nonsense, um, which the art market, I think, historically has been really, really bad at. When you look at like forecasting the value of a piece of art going forward, what do you th- like? What are the biggest things that you look at? So, say I own a you know a Jackson Pollock, and we can see you know historically how the price has risen or has fallen. Um, what's the number one factor that you're looking at to try to forecast the market going forward? Because again, to to an outside observer like me, and I know a lot of my listeners. I mean, we don't have any fucking idea how something like this would be priced. There's no, you know, Beckett price guide to show us how art is being priced. You know, with a with a stock or an equity or a, an option, we know how to price it. We can break down the elements of it. We can look at it, you know, what a company has on its balance sheet, et cetera, et cetera. So what are the, what are the variables that you guys look at to, you know, if you want to try and forecast, oh, that this Gilliam piece is going to do well in the future, what are you looking at? So the, the very the very first thing we did when we started Masterworks is we we knew that um, we would have to have a data driven approach to help people understand how to think about the value of art. And what we did is we went out and we took um, auction catalogs from the nineteen I think fifties maybe um, substantially starting in the nineteen sixties, and we had a team of twenty five interns find every single time a painting was purchased, the price it was purchased for. And then later in history, when the painting was sold and what it was sold for. And we established returns on more than 80,000 paintings. So very similar to how like Case Shiller, for, for those of your listeners that are, that are familiar with, with sort of real estate investing, but very similar to how Case Shiller was, was constructed for real estate, we used those 80,000 returns on different paintings to construct indexes of the art market overall. And that's, that's part of the data set today that informs us on how to think about how are different segments of the market appreciating or not appreciating? Which artists are accelerating the most quickly? Um, which aren't? And 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 that's 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 ultimately the the information that that we use to decide which artists for a purchasing team to purchase um, and bring to the platform. So I think you know when you're trying to figure out future returns, and, and we don't, as, as you mentioned, publish future or anticipated returns. But I think the best way to do that is to really look at historical returns. There's there's artists like Basquiat. Whose market overall is appreciated somewhere between 17 and 18 percent for the past 15 years, very consistently. Um, that are just really interesting, and certainly that appreciation rate could change in the future. We don't necessarily know how to forecast that, but it's been a it's been a pretty pretty stable, um, predictable pattern historically. I mean, would you say that it's a fair statement to say that the rich getting richer as a result of monetary policy is a is a tailwind for the art market. Yeah, I mean, we 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 definitely think there is data to suggest that. Yeah, because again, that that's most of the data that I read. Every time some billionaire, you know, there was just another one out a couple of days ago. CNBC put out an article. It's like, well, everybody else was dealing with the pandemic. The rich made four hundred and thirty-seven billion dollars. I'm like, great. You know, if it was right. possible to feel more like shit today than I already did, I have to read that. But but on the other hand, what interests me about it, and, and again, I've read all these articles. Every time, you know, there is a, a monetary intervention from the Fed, all these articles start popping up, Scott. A lot of them are about, about art. Some of them are also about, like, you know, rare scotch and whiskey collections also, too, that are selling for record prices at the very same auction houses that you're talking about. So what, what appeals to me about it is, hey, do I have another hedge against this asinine monetary policy? Um, and I don't know what your thoughts are on, on macroeconomics, but I'm just saying, you know, personally, I think to myself, like, hey, you know, is this something that could go up in value the crazier that the Fed gets? Because I think they're just going to continue to go batshit crazy. And that's one of the reasons that I like owning gold for the very same reason. So that was like one of those things that kind of caught my eye about the art world to begin with. Yeah, I mean, we it, it's, it's obviously a really timely question. I, I <laughs> you know, to, to be to be totally, totally honest, we that this is a question that. Um, that I kind of asked our research team last week to, to start looking into because I do think that that art is potentially a very good asset class um, in times like today. Yeah. All right. Well, there's a nice simple answer. I like simple answers. All right. I'm going to ask you. I have a couple more questions here that I want to ask you, and then we'll talk about 
your platform and exactly how you guys get down because I know that, that you want to discuss that. But uh, I just want to go back to the banana taped on the wall, and you'll have to <laughs> you have to forgive me. All right, this is I, I'm not claiming to be some. Uh, super sophisticated person. When I see a duct tape banana to the wall sell for $100,000 and I get the chance to talk to somebody that knows something about art, I want to fucking ask questions about it. I mean, just call me crazy. Call it human nature. Whatever. The guy that went and ate the banana, right? You know, there was video of some big fat Frenchman lumbering around a museum who eventually just walked up to the wall and took the banana off the wall and ate it and then just walked away and people were aghast. What the hell was that? Was that more performance art? Was it just a smart ass that wanted to eat a banana to see what would happen? What was going on there? Yeah. I, you know, I'm actually not, I'm not, fam- I'm not familiar with the eating the banana part, but, uh, Oh my look, God. They, they, how, how can you not know about that? Yeah. I, I, I didn't follow that, but you know, so the, so the banana, the banana thing, <laughs> the, the way to think about it, in art history, is there, there? There was this artist named Duchamp um, that that did this um, this art piece of a urinal. Are you familiar with that? Of a urinal? Of no. a urinal. I've spent so, time with urinals, not art pieces involving them. <laughs> so he he was the very first artist to ask this question on you know what is art, and right. and I think uh, I think that you can think of the banana similarly, right? Like the artist really is just just asking the question, what is art? Um, and, and can this be art or is this not art? And and in and in a in a way, it's highly effective because we're we're talking about it right now. Right. Um, yeah. Sure. Well, I actually almost thought that, and that's one of the reasons I wanted to kind of query you about that. Was when I watched the video of the guy, and so what happens is the banana is taped to a wall somewhere in a museum, and you know this. Big guy, kind of <laughs> what older? Looks like an older, chubby French guy. If I had to just, you know, be a uh, take a guess at who the hell he is. I, I don't know anything about him. You know, he walks up to it. There's a whole crowd of people gathered around the banana. They're taking pictures of it, whatever. And he, he looks at the he looks at the crowd and he looks at the banana and he kind of just shrugs and he takes the banana down off the wall and the people are <gasps> you know <laughs> and he and he unpeels it and he has a little snack and then he discards <laughs> the remain of the banana and he walks away and then you know later you see him being jumped by museum security and i'm thinking to myself well that's kind of like more of a piece of art than the banana itself right is the guy who said well it's just a banana and i'm going to show you that cuz i'm going to eat it so yeah, and I think I think there, you know, you're definitely transitioning into performance art, but but obviously, as you, as you mentioned <laughs> in the beginning, it, I mean, trying to figure out how to value something like that in our world is, is too complicated. So <laughs> you need to watch that video when we get off the pod. Here, you thought you were going to come on the podcast and teach me about art, and I'm teaching you about art. How about that? Learn learning new things every day, right? All right, just another question that I I just have to ask. I know you probably don't get this during most of your interviews. I listened to a couple of your interviews today. They all sound very structured, but uh, this one isn't. Uh, aren't there just a lot of crazy people in the art world <laughs> in general? Like You find there's a lot of just strange people dealing in the art world? Oh, 100%. 100%. I mean, you know what's interesting is like, I was talking to this friend the other day who's a, uh, who's a large collector and you know, you, you go to these art fairs, and, and I, I've been going into them for a long time. And I, I mean, to me, it feels like there's 95 percent of the people at the fair that aren't buying anything, and they're just sort of hanging around, part of the you know the art world right. intermediary infrastructure. And yeah, it's kind of it's it's definitely kind of weird. Um, but there there's you know I think there's there's definitely more strange people in the art world than probably other industries. And, <laughs> and in some, in some ways that from a masterworks perspective, that's what's so interesting, right? Like, I mean, I, I come from a world where I've been starting tech companies for the past 15, 20 years. And many of the industries I've worked in, you have the smartest people in the world in those industries, right? The, the art world, you, you just don't. And, and in some ways that that's what makes it so interesting. How did you personally get into art? Like what were you doing beforehand? What were you investing in beforehand? And then what kind of, turned you into like oh hey i'm gonna start investing in art i i personally i had a i just had a mother who was who was an amateur artist grew up with art books um always found it interesting but you know i, I mean i started collecting when i was 19 20 years old um just random random stuff uh, from from money that i that i kind of first started making from my various first company that i, that I started in high school and it was just a passion project, but back then you you couldn't even really 
think of it as a real investment because you didn't even have data. You know, nobody was recording data on, on what things were selling for or publishing right. it. The internet was new. It was, it was too hard to really think about it um, as an investment. And obviously that's, that's changed over the past, the past 20 years. Um, but yeah, I mean, like, like any collector, you know, I made, I made lots of mistakes. Um, one of the things you, you learn very quickly in the art market is the, the artist himself does definitely matter, but the object created by the artist sometimes matters more. So as an example, Picasso, I think during his lifetime created 60, I want to say 65,000 objects. Um, so obviously out of, you know, those 65,000 objects, not, not everyone we would, we would consider investment grade. Um, so really understanding how to find the right, the right artist and the right object is, is pretty important. Did you, are you familiar with the, the Salvatore Mundi story, which I think was the Da Vinci painting that turned up missing at one point? Do you know about this story or no? Yeah, so I, I'm actually on the board of an organization called the um, the International Foundation of Art Research, and we spent a lot of time researching that painting from a uh, from an authenticity perspective. Um, so yeah, really really familiar with that. Can you explain that story to my listeners? Because this is something I read about. I remember I don't know maybe a year ago that there was this painting by and and this is kind of like a cool you know there's a conspiracy theory angle to this story too which i think is probably what intrigued me but this salvatore mundi painting there were all these questions about its authenticity and then it wound up going to auction and it sold for like 400 or 500 million dollars and nobody could figure out where the hell it was being sold and then there were all these questions about whether or not it was going to uh the the saudi prince and how it was being handled and it was on a yacht or it was supposed to be shown in a museum can you explain that story to my to my listeners <laughs> well the, it's hard to explain the story because i think nobody exactly knows what the what the story is but you know the, the history of the paintings it's a, it's a rediscovered um uh da vinci painting that that I believe, I believe it was attributed historically to Da Vinci. Maybe not, um, but anyway, it 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 was rediscovered, and then it later sold to an investment group. And I can't I can't remember what does rediscovered mean. Meaning it wasn't known to be a Da Vinci before. Okay. Right. So so art historians looked at it. And they basically said, you know, it looks like it's the hand of Da Vinci. Feels similar. Um, and then there was a bunch of work done before I think this investment group. Uh, actually, maybe that's what it was. It's coming back to me now. So, so there was some work done to conclude it might be a Da Vinci, probably a Da Vinci. This investment group bought it. Continued uh, research was done, and and basically, you know, a hundred percent of the painting was probably not by the hand of Da Vinci, but um, it, it it most likely, you know, almost certainly is. Um, is a da Vinci, um, at least mostly. So the painting, you know, went up for auction and sold for $450 million. I think most people thought it would sell for a hundred million, 150 million. Right. Um, it was believed to be purchased by, by the Saudi prince. Um, it, you know, it, it, uh, it, it just sold for that much. I think really because there's no other da Vinci's it, that was, that was sort of a once in a lifetime opportunity. That's how it was marketed. And on one hand, you can say, yeah, $450 million for a Da Vinci is a lot, but you know, there's a lot of things in this world that are $450 million, like commercial buildings. There's a lot of commercial buildings that are $450 million. Uh, you know, it, it, was a pretty, it was a pretty rare um, and special object that really just nobody knew how to value. Um, wasn't yeah, the, that, wasn't that the was, big controversy, though, that they didn't know whether, like you said, it was Da Vinci himself or like somebody that was an apprentice of his or something? They thought it, maybe know, it, it had painted it? Yeah, I mean, I, this this whole uh, thing's a bit frustrating to me personally. So there, there's a uh, there was an article written by Jerry Saltz um, for the New Yorker immediately after it sold that basically said the painting was not a Da Vinci, right? Right. And the the amount of effort and research that went into concluding that it was a Da Vinci was, I don't know, thousands, tens of thousands of hours, right? Hundreds of, I mean, I don't know, tons and tons and tons of research over a number of years. Um, you know that article was written in a couple of days, so I it, right. it unfortunately did start a trend where people started questioning the authenticity of the painting. But there, there's a long history there that I that I think has just just been. been How the hell do you most. even authenticate a painting? I mean, what do you do? You do like radiocarbon dating? I mean, like what? Are you just yeah, are you just it, have a consensus of scholars that that? You there, know, 
you know, we, we could talk about this for hours, but there, there's a long history on how to authenticate uh, artworks that, that really has almost come full circle. So historically, you would basically have a, a scholar who who is kind of the person that decides whether or not that that painting is is authentic, at least for old masters, for living painters or or recently living painters. There's often um, authenticity boards that exist within the the artist foundation or the artist estate. Um, but for a lot of these paintings that are several hundred years old, it, it, historically you would rely on a person around kind of the early 2000s that moved to a, uh, a scientific process of pigment testing and looking at pigments from um, you know the molecular, molecular structure of a pigment from the painting that you're, you're analyzing compared to other paintings that the artist did. The problem with that is that a lot of these artists would have schools of, um, of painters that were working with them or apprentices that were painting for them. Uh, so they were all using the same paint. So pigment testing didn't really work. And, and you know, there's been some attempts to analyze brush strokes with, you know, trying to see if a particular artist uses a brush in a certain way and whether that that's repeated in other artworks. Um, but today we've we've almost come full circle full circle and just have designated experts for for certain artists that um, the art world goes to to confirm whether or not something's authentic. And then you know because they're kind of like the uh, the best in the world. It's kind it's what they say goes. Then it's basically basically true, and it does. You know we have seen with some of these old masters that um, that you know authenticity can change throughout the years. Like we've seen that a lot with Rembrandt where someone concludes something's authentic and then it's not authentic or, you know, it's painted by a couple of different people and it's partly authentic. Um, so, it, you know, it is, it is a complicated, complicated, um, complicated body of, of research. But, you know, the, the things that Masterworks is dealing with, we're, we're really just looking at contemporary art created after 1970 primarily. Um, and, and with that segment of the art, the art market, there's really not any questions around around authenticity right right although you do you have you have uh you do some older paintings though right i mean you, you do paintings prior to the 70s is that right on your site yeah we we're mainly focused on contemporary we we do think there's there's one um maybe maybe two or three artists within within impressionism that are interesting monet specifically um the thing that's really interesting about monet's market is that he has the the lowest risk of any artist that we track um, and we, when we say risk, we, we really are talking about that in a very traditional financial sense, which means uh, standard deviation and returns. So his returns are more predictable than than any other artist. They're they're very narrowly banded. So we think he's he's a good artist, frankly. That's that's a good store of value artist, um, similar to how you would think about gold, for example. Um, out of out of all the artists we look at, yeah, I think I, Monet is uh, like impressionism, right? Yep. Yeah, I think I first saw Monet when I went to the Renoir exhibit at the uh, Philadelphia Museum of Art, which is a similar style. Am I correct or am I wrong? Yeah, yeah, very similar. Okay, so let me ask you about one artist, and then you can tell me a little bit more about uh, the site and how it works, because I find it pretty uh, interesting. I interesting enough for me to sign up and, and put some money in there. Um, but uh, talk to me about Banksy. And, and the reason I want to ask you about Banksy is because... Again, somebody that's not involved in the art world, which I am not, uh, don't really pay any attention to contemporary art. And all of a sudden, you know, really the last, I don't know, 10 years, 15 years, or maybe decade, or maybe you can tell me, the name Banksy keeps coming up. Keeps coming up. Banksy, Banksy. You know, and I'm just, who is it? Why did they get so popular? And what am I missing that's going on in the art world with Banksy that I see all these headlines about it? Yeah, he's you know so Banksy's a pretty pretty uh, controversial guy. Started as a um, as a graffiti artist uh, out of the UK. Um, you know, I think because he was a graffiti artist, obviously, um, you know, graffiti is illegal um, in most places. He never has disclosed his name, so I think that's part of the part of the allure. Ah, uh, but he did a, did a lot of a lot of stunts um, historically, where you know he would go into museums and. Uh, do replicas of paintings, but you know, paint um, like see disclosure on the painting, or you know, just some some tiny change to it, rehang it in the museum without the museum knowing, <laughs> and then see you know see, seeing how long the painting 
stays up uh, before before anyone anyone notices. So he's, yeah, he's he's been a very controversial guy. I'm sure you probably read about the shredding of the painting at, at Sotheby's. Um, you know, yeah. one of his works sold at auction, and then it kind of self shredded. I like that. We think he's an interesting artist, um, mainly because he's he's from a pop culture perspective. Almost everyone has heard of Banksy at this point, and he's bringing new collectors into the art market that that haven't existed historically. And his paintings are still reasonably inexpensive. We we did a um, an offering for a uh, I think the the title of the painting was Mona Lisa, um, which was was roughly a million dollar offering. And up until that point, which was only six or nine months ago. Um, I think it was his second or third most expensive painting ever to sell. And then a couple months after we did that offering, he sold this Parliament painting, which so many listeners may, may be familiar with, which I think sold for uh, twelve or thirteen million dollars. Um, really, just setting an entirely new, new uh, kind of ceiling for for his work. So he's really hot right now. You know, we we could see his paintings selling for three, four, or five million dollars. How old is he? Um, that's a good question. I want to say he's in his 40s or 50s, um, late 40s, 50s, something like that. I mean, do but, people know not, his identity? Sure. I mean, do they know? Do they know who he is? You know, in the art world, there are definitely people who know who know who he is. Um, you know, I, I've never personally met him, spoke to him, but I but I do know know a lot of people who have. The uh, the shredded painting, I think, is when I the one that I first paid attention to. Obviously, not from like the. Uh, I appreciate it as art, but more like, you know, ha ha, you just paid however many million for this and the thing just <laughs> shredded itself on stage. For people that don't know what the hell happened, can you tell uh, that story about what happened with that piece of art? Yeah, I can't, I can't remember the title of the work or what it sold for, but, it, you know, it was a, it was a million dollar painting that sold and, and basically he had built a uh, some sort of contraption into the frame to, to, to self <laughs> To self shred it right after they the uh, they wound up owning it in the in the auction room. So uh, I mean the story. I, I I was talking to a friend who was formerly um, CEO at Sotheby's, and I think uh, I think he said that they gave the person who purchased that the the right to decide if they wanted to still purchase it or or not. And I think the person decided to to purchase it anyway, right? Um, just because there was there's so much press around that. Um, they, they felt it was worth more. Yeah, it was, you know, super interesting. And of course, as an idiot from the outside, you know, I'm like, that's what you get for paying a million dollars for a painting. And I liked it because it was kind of, it reminded me of the Tom Green show, you know, or like Jackass, <laughs> which is yeah. really the, the only way to get me into the art world at the time, I guess. Well, and I, I believe me, I think that was probably Banksy's point. <laughs> yeah, well, that's great. I mean, because uh, here we are talking about it again. So it's obviously gone down. What would you have done if you had the option of keeping it or not keeping it? Would you Would you have kept it? Uh, I, you know, I we uh, speaking from Masterworks' perspective, we we wouldn't have kept it. I I wouldn't have kept it personally. I, I you know, I, I think it's a. Uh, there's definitely people that I think would buy that painting after after that happened, but. You know how you comp that long term, how you think about value long term. I, I, <laughs> I, I have no idea. So the site is intriguing, intriguing enough that I signed up uh, recently because uh, well, because I just found it curious. So talk about what it is that you guys do. Sure. Yeah. So we you know we spent the past forty five minutes talking about the art market, um, very high level, and and I think the reason I started Masterworks and what the business is focused on today. Is taking this very interesting asset class, which historically has, has outperformed most other asset classes, is uncorrelated. Um, acts as a really good diversifier for a portfolio, but but historically has really just been limited to the ultra wealthy. So the only right. way to invest has been to buy that several million dollar painting, um, and the only way to build a portfolio is to to spend tens of millions of dollars on on paintings. So it, you know, it's just not an asset class that that's been available to ninety nine percent of the world. Um, up until Masterworks, so we were the first company to to purchase a painting, um, file it with the SEC um, uh, under something called Reg A, sell shares in the painting to both retail and accredited investors, um, and then just recently even launched um, a trading platform so people can now trade shares in paintings, just like they they trade shares in companies. It's actually kind of a badass idea. 
Like it's and and I'm seeing this all over the place, right? They're doing it with real estate. There's a company called I forget what they're called. I think it's called Fundrise. Yeah, yeah, Fundrise is yeah, Fundrise is great. One of their founders is actually on our advisory board. Um, Okay. Yeah, yeah, where they sell shares in you know real estate projects. Um, It's a little bit different than buying uh, traditional securities, but. I think as an introduction to the art world in in an area that's illiquid where, you know, one product is so expensive, especially, you know, I'm looking at some of the closed offerings that you have on your site right now, and all of them are over a million dollars. So, you know, if you're just a regular Joe Schmo and you want to invest, you know, $15,000 or something into the art world, uh, you're really kind of limited in, in, in your choices, which sucks because... A lot of people that, you know, grew up, you didn't have to even grow up and be super into art, but the, you know, as you come up through primary school and you come up through middle school and at some point people have exposure to art. I mean, I have in a very limited sense. So like when you talk about Jackson Pollock, I I understand, you know, what type of painting we're talking about. You know, I understand what Salvador Dali paintings look like. I understand, you know, just a very, 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 very basics. Even with just that basic rudimentary understanding, there are certain things that, you know, speak to me a little bit and certain things that don't speak to me. Um, But, you know, up until now, it was never something I thought like, oh, I could ever have any monetary exposure to it. So I I just think it's a I think it's a really badass idea. I think it's a really good idea. And that's why I'm uh, that's why I'm happy to have you on and, and talk about it. Yeah, I mean, we're, we're all about making the asset class more accessible, right? So even even beyond just securitization of, of these individual paintings, but it's also with, with helping people learn more about art. It's, it's I mean, as we talked about earlier, like it's just not an, an easy thing to learn about. There's not good data on it. Um, so we're, we're really trying to figure out how do, we, how do we train people quickly on the asset class, um, you know, help them become good investors, find opportunities that make sense for them in their portfolio um, and invest. Yeah. I mean, much, you know, small dollar amounts, relatively speaking um, across a number of paintings. Yeah. It's just one of those things too. It reminds me of wine, you know, like I always wanted to learn a little bit more about wine. I don't know why. I mean, maybe because I'm a drunk, but, or maybe because it's just one of these things that has eluded me. And, you know, and it's strange too because art is like we were going back to our discussion before when you see people standing around at these galleries and standing around at these uh, showings and stuff a lot of people are just there to goof the floof you know (laughs) people are there because they like you know standing in an art gallery holding an espresso cup you know and, and, and wearing funny looking glasses and talking to people about things that they think are important but even to the to the everyday person it's interesting to kind of you know learn a little bit more about what the hell is going on again it's a very opaque market right yeah, it's a very opaque market. So, you know, that that is, I, I, I guess, what, what we're trying to do is add some more transparency and accessibility. Um, and, it, you know, like I, I mentioned earlier, when we first started our research team, it, I, and I tell people this, that, that I've, I've known them for a long time in, in tech, you know, the fact that we had to have 25 interns go out and take paper auction catalogs for the past, whatever, 60 or 70 years and scan in information. I mean, that's crazy, right? There's not, there's no other industry in the world that hasn't been digitized by 2020. Um, so it, it, it really is fascinating and just how, I guess, antiquated the art market is for, for something that does $68 billion a year in turnover and has an asset value of $1.7 trillion. It's just mind blowing to me. Yeah, it must be the most like the most expensive market that nobody knows shit about. <laughs> right. <laughs> Anyways, right. listen, Scott, will you come back on the podcast at some point if some crazy shit happens in the art world and I need somebody's brain to pick? Will you come back on and like try to explain it to my listeners, most of whom are in an alcoholic haze after an hour? <laughs> Yeah, happy to have, happy to do the best that the best that I can. What's my final question is what's in Scotland's uh, liquor cabinet at home? Uh, being a art investor, you know, somebody from uh, the the fancy world of art. What do you what do you drink when uh, you want to unwind at the end of the day? You know, I'm mainly to be honest, I'm mainly a tequila guy. So uh, my, oh, my wow. latest tequila is uh, Casa de Dragones. 
Okay. Um, you know, I've, I drink. I used to drink a, a lot of wine, but I think the older I get, I just kind of stick more to tequila. <laughs> the older I get, the more for, 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 for various reasons. <laughs> tequila is one of those things where, like, and sorry to go off base here for a second, and just you know, stop me if you have a hard stop here. But te- tequila is one of those things where, like, you know, so many people drank, myself included, drank so much of it when we were like in our twenties that there just came that one day where you were like, oh, I'm never fucking drinking tequila again. And then I noticed like, you know, two decades later here, I have some friends that drink it and they just, uh, the way that they talk about it is the way that I talk about whiskey. You know, they sit and and they sip it. You know, they're obviously, they're not doing shots in the grilled Jamaica off of people's, uh, (laughs) you know, ass cracks anymore. But do you drink it just like uh, straight up? Like, will you just sip it, or what do you do? I just I just put it on the rocks. But you know, for me, tequila—the great thing about tequila is that I feel good the next day. So that's—I think that's my main reason for drinking it compared to, to other things. Like you don't get you don't get as bad of a hangover. No, not at all. I wonder if that has to do with the uh, the agave in tequila. Uh, that's, yeah, I don't. That's a good question. All right. Well, um, listen. Scott, thanks so much for coming on, brother. And uh, hopefully uh, you can come back soon. And uh, next time somebody sells a $100,000 banana, I demand an explanation, all right? Awesome. Thanks, Chris. <laughs> all right, brother. We'll talk soon. Thanks again. That was the one, the only Scotland of Masterworks. Very cool site. And uh, cool he could drop some knowledge about the art world because uh, I don't fucking know anything about it. And I'm sure you don't, too, because I've seen the demographic analytics of my podcast and you're all age 20 to 40 and you're all drinking right now you all have drinking problems so uh maybe we just refined you a little bit gave you a little bit of an education into the art world but hopefully scott will come back on the next time something crazy happens in the art world and uh we can discuss it now i got a guy i got a guy in the art world i can go to which i like and his site is masterworks.io i will put a link to that in the podcast description if you want to check out what they're up to I have a bunch of great shit scheduled. I'm so happy. I really am. I know I talked yesterday on my Periscope about Dave Portnoy calling out Ross Gerber. And uh, that just made a great week even better. But a lot of interesting content coming up. But for right now, I am out of here. Peace.